right, let's get into the word here. There is no shortage of talk about our faith among us, for sure. Some are against our faith. We highlight our common faith, our common doctrine. We talk about our personal walks of faith. We talk about keeping the faith when things aren't going well. I'm not saying we've developed a preoccupation with faith, but we know how important faith is. Faith in Christ, the Christian faith, your personal faith, our collective corporate faith as a church. And you know, I've, I've thought about this recently. I've been a Christian long enough and I've followed Christ long enough to have heard many things repeated. We talk about our faith, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, we only deal with one book. So if you study one book for your whole life, my guess is every once in a while you're gonna hear something you heard before, right? And the things that we hear about our faith that are, are really important are that we, we need to have faith. We've been told that we need to increase our faith. We've been told that uh, faith is gonna get us through. Um, that I guess the more faith you have, sometimes we've heard this, the more faith you have, more you see God breaking into your life. That's something I've heard a lot. I don't know if I totally agree with that, fleshing that out. In other words, process these things that you hear over and over and over again, because if you hear something over and over and over again, eventually we begin to just accept it as true, just from the sheer redundancy of it all. But I think there's nuances, and I think there's perspectives on some of the things we hear often. I think there's time for us to pause and really think about things, because I think we've heard some things so often that we've adopted them as the gospel, when in reality, there's more to it than that. There are, I have noticed, even today, a whole void in the scripture that has to be addressed when it comes to believing God to change things. It's, it's not talked about, it's so obvious, it's so right in front of your face, you can't see it. It's been there the whole time, but we've gotten so accustomed to saying the same thing over and over. I'm talking about pastors and teachers and televangelists. We've all said the same thing so many times, but we've neglected this one thing. We haven't developed this one thought. We haven't built on this one insight, a divine insight. And I think today, I'm gonna tell you faith is so very, very important, but I think there's something more important than faith. I think God thinks there's something more important than faith. I think we've lost this idea that there's something more important than faith. We have to figure out what it is because when we put that with our faith, now we're doing something. Now we're doing something that's more full, more complete, and less marginalized, selective. Believe all you want, but don't leave this one thing out. Sometimes I think the level and intensity of our faith must be fully amassed to do something special. We must accumulate this faith. We must invest this faith. We must get yields and dividends off this faith. And then when this faith has matured and this, it's accumulated and it's storehoused, then we can release it in prayer and we're gonna trade it in for something huge. Said another way, if we have a huge prayer request, a seeming, seemingly ominous situation, an ominous disease, an on, ominous, who can figure this one out but God, we say, well, I don't know that I could really deal with that right now because I've got this puny faith. I got less than a big storehouse of faith. I don't have a 403B or an IRA or a 401K of faith there that I can draw from. And that's frankly just not biblical. Isn't it just faith that brings about results? 
No. Sometimes you ask the question, why don't we see this happen more in the Western church? Why don't we see people healed more? Why don't we see this? Why don't we see that? I can't stand it. This is, the, this is horrible when I hear this. I don't hear it here, but I've heard it elsewhere. Some poor person is dealing with their 75th chemo treatment or some incredible horrific ordeal, and they're not healed, and someone has the audacity, not the wisdom, the audacity to say, well, you just don't have faith. Yeah. Let's be clear. In Jesus' ministry, he, had, he healed people that had no faith at all. In fact, they didn't even know who he was. Didn't know his name. Some of them weren't even present. They didn't acknowledge. They didn't go to church. They didn't make, give offerings or tithes or alms. Or... One of them hung on a cross. That was his criteria for faith. It's... Some were not even inclined to think that anything that could happen to them. So if you got puny faith today, welcome in. You're in, you're in the right place. Some had no inclination they were even being talked about and God was healing their bodies as someone else talked on their behalf miles from where they were. They were clueless. Maybe you're clueless today. You wandered into this church and go, I don't know where I'm at the end of my rope. I'm just gonna try this God thing. Well, welcome. We've all been clueless. And frankly, some of us still are. I'm trying to remain that way myself. So here's a question. Does the intensity of our faith, the accumulation and the intensity of our faith, need to rival the supreme immensity of God? I mean, I'm asking you a question here. If God is so supreme, so all-knowing, so ever-present, so ever-wise, compassionate, loving, gracious, merciful, if he's all in all and has always has been, he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the bright morning star, the bishop of our soul. I mean, if he's all these things we say he is in worship, if he's all the things that we've put together in the lyrics of our songs, how much faith do you have to have in a God that immense and that powerful, that potent? He's the potentate. He's the potent potentate. How much faith do you have to have in someone like that? I mean, do I have to have enough faith in him to rival his immensity and superiority and supremacy? I hope not, because I'm not, I'm not going to be around long enough to, to get that up enough. I don't know. I'm just not going to have that much faith. I, like you, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to live my life. I'm trying to look back at my life and say, I, I, like I did something, I accomplished something. I don't think I'm gonna have faith that's gonna rival the immensity and the superiority of God. I'm gonna have some faith, I'm gonna have more than other people, but I've come to the place in my walk where I'm no longer worried about whether I have enough faith. I'm not worried about the answer to my question, I'm realizing it's the wrong question to begin with. And this is the difference between churches that see people transformed and changed and grow and mature in churches that see people healed, as we're seeing here. Faith is ever so important, but it's incomplete. And if we live our life as though it's the answer to everything, what God does and intervenes in our life will be incomplete as well. And it's so clear, so obvious, 
that we've missed it. Somehow we have to reconcile these two statements. All you really need is a mustard seed of faith in Matthew 17 and 20, and then Jesus saying in Matthew 6 and 30, O ye of little faith. Somewhere between those two extremes, we find ourselves on any given day it can vacillate. So I now read to you 1 Corinthians 13 and 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let me reiterate what I said and what I didn't say. I did not say, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is faith. And now abide, faith, hope, and love, these three, but in the greatest of these is love, King James Version. These three remain. Remain means to abideth, stick around. They don't go anywhere. They, they tarry, they sojourn, they tarry, they wait, they're there. They don't perish, they're not corruptible. They don't mildew, they don't decay, they are. Faith, hope, and love are, they're, they're an aspect of the divine, they're in our life by believers, our status as believers, it's there. They abide. You wander off, they're still gonna be there. You're up and down, they're still gonna be there. You leave the faith, they're still gonna be there. People come to the faith and they come from all different places, they're there waiting. Faith, hope, and love are waiting. You came in here today, you don't Jesus Christ, that's okay. Abiding before you came in today on this day that maybe you decided to give God some sort of chance to speak into your life, faith, hope, and love are waiting on you. And they're, they haven't changed. They're, they're real, they're very real. Faith, a strong and welcome conviction, the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith, to believe, to trust. Hope, hope is nothing more than a faith practiced You've extended your request to God. You believe that God is capable. You believe that he heard your prayer. You're believing by faith, whether it's a mustard seed or a mountain of faith. Doesn't matter. You're trusting God to answer the prayer. You've believed by faith. Now you no longer believe for it. Now you hope. Hope is just the expectation that what you ask for by faith is on its way. Faith is ordering something from Amazon, believing it's actually gonna make it to your door, which recently is kind of suspect. But you did order it, and you paid for it. Now you're waiting for it to show up. That's hope. I just hope it gets here. I believe it's gonna get, I'm just hoping right now. And love, and the greatest of these is love. Love is charity, it is affection, it is unconditional, benevolent compassion. It's empathetic. It's as far from pathetic as you can get. It is the opposite of this world. This world without love is pathetic. Love makes us empathetic. They say nowadays when you hire somebody in the marketplace, and there's a lot of people wishing they were doing a lot more hiring, huh? Used to be, you wanted to know someone's IQ, your intelligent quotient. That was an important thing. Where were you educated? Where'd you go to school? What was your degree? What were your grades? When I was a kid, I used to like to see those bumper stickers. You know, the, most of the bumper stickers said, my son or daughter goes to XYZ Middle School and they're on the honor roll. I loved the ones that said, yeah, my Johnny goes to middle school and he's straight C's. Got a D last week. And I love him just as much. I used to like that one. <laughs> 
Of course, it's a big bumper. You don't have bumpers that big anymore. But your, your IQ is important. How, how intelligent are you? I never did figure that out. Most of those IQ tests are about putting shapes and weird angles with one another and stuff. But intelligent quotient was the first thing you looked for. You figured if this person was smart, they were well-read, if they were learned people, if they were intelligent, then they could figure most anything out and we should hire them. Smarter you are, the better. Quicker to hire. Smarter you are, the more money you made. Not anymore. Now we got something called the EQ. Thank God we do. Your emotional quotient. This is something that's now of paramount importance in the hiring process. It says that you can get along with the team. It says you don't freak out and get dramatic in the midst of a conflict. It says that you can confront somebody in a healthy manner. It says that you can reconcile with someone else if you've got a problem between you. It says that you're an asset to the organization because you're, you're compassionate with your coworkers. It means you operate with poise. You might not be the sharpest tack in the drawer, but you're not going to cause a lot of problems in the office either. Hallelujah. Emotional quotient. If you can communicate today and work on a team, you're of high importance and easily hired, even in a field you really don't know much about. If you can work as a team, get along with people, and communicate with more than a text message, you're a valuable asset in this world today. Albert Einstein have a hard time getting a job in most, most employers nowadays. What's your IQ and what's your EQ? I say this because Jesus picked some guys that, in retrospect, I'm not sure had the highest IQ. Maybe they did. But it was more a street sense than it was a book sense. Catch fish on the Galilee. I don't know how much time you have for thesis and dissertations. IQ is important, but so is EQ. EQ says, I have the ability to regulate my emotions. And here it is. I can empathize with others. You can have an IQ off the charts and not feel a thing. And someone else is perishing. Walking through decades of ALS, MS, or any other abbreviation to come across. What's your IQ? Your IQ might diagnose the problem, but your EQ, that's the person you want in the storm. We've IQ'd the tar out of the Bible. And I'm not sure we've maximized, well, I am sure we haven't maximized our EQ, say the least. Why would I stand up here on multiple Sundays in recent times after having told you that the Lord was going to heal people in this church and say things like, I'm not sure we're fully walking in our humanity if we can't weep on behalf of another? Why would I say that? Why would I talk to grown men about longing for, from the Lord, a desire to weep over the pain of another, starting with our wives? 
Because there's faith, you see, and there's hope, and there's love, but the greatest of these is love. If you've made your faith an intellectual pursuit, an apologetic defense of the gospel alone, apart from love, apart from love, the greatest of these, then you have successfully put a faith walk on par with any other scientific discipline. Psychology, sociology, biology, geology, geography, you've put it on par. If, if it has not love, it's a clanging cymbal, resounding gong. See, the love part is essential. That's why I say, how much faith do you have to have in this supreme God, I don't know. Mustard seed, apparently, but love. How does love factor into answered prayers? How does love factor into someone being healed of MS? How does love factor into praying for your granddaughter and your daughter and those whose love and for the faith is waxing cold? Where does love come in? Because faith must be taken off its throne and put down a notch beneath love. How do you bring souls into the kingdom? With an IQ or an EQ? What are we doing? Who's, who's God hiring to do the ministry today? Well, he's hiring the EQ. I'm very much aware of this because I have the privilege, and I mean privilege, of ministering to people from all walks of the Christian faith. It's no secret. We have charismaniacs and Pentecostals in here, people are trying to figure out how to speak in tongues, and you got someone else who's a cessationist. You got people from the Catholic Church, Lutheran Church, Episcopal Church, you people come from everywhere. And I think it's great. So it's my job to do what? Pick some part of the spectrum and beat you over the head with it? No, take the Bible and teach it. You either come up or you come down. I don't know what direction you need to go in, but if you're a cessationist and you haven't left the church yet, you need to come up. The cessationist says there's no healing in this modern era, listen, you've just made the case for healing. How? Your IQ approach to the scripture is not empathetic, not compassionate, not loving. It places faith above love, and you get enough cessationists together, you'll see zero results, zero healings. You've just made the actual point that God's still in the healing business because the absence of love and the presence of the intellectual quotient of the Bible is yielding no fruit. Come on, if we're gonna think about it, let's think about all of it. People are getting healed here. Holes in esophaguses are getting sealed up. People are coming off of ventilators. People are supposed to die aren't dying. My fear is we think and we will continue to think that that's a faith issue. Why does a little baby get healed with no medical intervention when you place that baby before a congregation? Because the congregation looks at the baby and feels something. This should not be. The EQ goes up and we believe. Anytime you present something to somebody and they have to elicit 
the actual response of God within them towards someone's pain, toil, depression, depravity, suicide, sinfulness. You see, there were 26 healing accounts in the Bible. They all have two things in common. Jesus, and Jesus was touched before he ever touched anyone else. Literally and figuratively and emotionally. When, when that woman with the issue of blood reached out and touched his feet, she literally touched him first, and then he was touched. When they lowered that pat- paralytic through the roof, you know what touched him? The lengths that they took for this man to come into the living room, to cut the roof open, they wanted this so bad, he was hurting so bad, that's what touched him, and then he touched the man. When he looked at the woman with the shriveled hand or the bent over back, or the, he's the one touching the leper when everybody's running the other direction, he felt something. He had an emotional, empathetic quotient to him that was divine because love trumps faith and hope. Believing God to do things in someone's life without having, my wife's teaching me this right now. She said this the other day. We're in a staff meeting, we're about to pray for people, and that little baby in Ukraine that we prayed for, how many times we pray for that baby to be born? It's a beautiful child. Born in the midst of bombs surrounding the baby. She made this profound thought, got me thinking about this. You know, if we're gonna pray about something so desperate like that, I'm paraphrasing, If we're gonna approach something that's so dire, and people are hurting so bad, why don't we first just sit in it? Why don't we just first take the time to get God's perspective? Why don't we just feel it? So often, We exercise our faith. We rattle off some prayer. Feel better that we did. Leave the encounter feeling, I'm glad I did that. I prayed for so-and-so. That's different, my friend, than sitting in it. Think about what was it like? What is it like? to have that disease, to have that sickness, to feel that alienation, to feel that loneliness, to be that depressed. Some of us even know what it was like. We've had these things happen to us before. Retrieve that and say to us, you know, faith and love and hope, am I, do I love this person? You know, sometimes we say, so-and-so has the gift of healing. Or we say that the Spirit of God can touch somebody and give them a gift of healing for any occasion. Very true and very biblical. But you know who I want praying for me? And you know who God's gonna give the gift of healing in a circumstance? The person that's hurting as bad as the one who needs prayer. Who else would you have pray for somebody more so than the one who feels it, who, who's, who's looking at the skyline and weeping over Jerusalem? You see, this is another thing. There are people right now, they come to me and they're asking me these questions because they're, they're beginning to experience some things they haven't experienced before and they're asking questions of God they've never asked before and now they're coming to me in secret going like, would you please tell me about this because if I did this in public, they think I was a fool. Like what is this whole thing about a prayer language? I said, well most people, most people want 
a prayer language because in their intelligence quotient, they see, well, that's a biblical thing and I want to put that mark on my belt. What is a prayer language, really? What is it really? Well, if Romans 8 and 26 is this, it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God groaning, groaning, grieving, heaving, hurting for other people. You see, the only reason God would give someone a prayer language is so God could pray for the people through them because he's the one that has the deepest longing to see something come to pass. You see, that's not the motivation of most people. You go to church after church after church and it's some sort of status symbol. It's not a status symbol. It's a deeply intimate hurting and grieving and mourning of the Spirit of God over sin, over illness, over pain, over people who were really, 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 really hurting. Uh, don't, you, don't you have trouble with this sometimes? Like, I don't fault us for this because we're so removed from it, I'm not sure. We get it, but how do you pray for the people of Ukraine? I mean, really think about it. For the most part, it's an IQ thing, I mean, Pray that, you could pray that the enemy turns on itself, is confused, that's been, that prayer's been answered. That they surrender in places, that's been answered. That's all biblical. But I, I finished praying, I'm almost like, that was, was kind of like, uh, I know I don't know what it's like to be there, but that's kind of platitudes. It's like rhetoric, it's like, it's like babbling, pagan babbling on the street corner. I don't, I don't feel it. Like I know, it's hard to feel something like they're feeling. And it's not all about feelings. It's about caring. It's about wanting, longing. You see, that's what, the love fuels the faith. The faith doesn't fuel the love. When you have a sibling or you have a son or a daughter, a grandson or granddaughter that are really hurting and they're running away from the Lord as many are, the key here is, on your EQ prayer, it's, is to put aside your anger, put aside your frustration, put aside, put aside those things and really feel what that person's feeling. You can't condemn them, you can't judge them, you gotta say, what's going on here? Because their enemy is not flesh and blood. And then we said, well, you pray and pray and pray and pray, didn't get any results. Well, it would've, hurt, it would've helped if you weren't mad the whole time you were praying. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. How do we do that? I counsel with people, and this is a very difficult part of my role in this church is I counsel with people. There are counselors here. I talked to them before. That, like, you wallow in the depravity of the human beings in this world. Right? You, you spend eight hours a day, some of you, in the depths of the depravity of people's addictions and, and, and unspeakable things. How do you do that and keep your sanity? How do you feel, how do you pray for these people? Or is it, I don't know, maybe there's a limit. Likewise, the Spirit also help us our, helpful in our infirmities, for we know that not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
Are you first touching the heart of God before you're asking him to touch others or your own? That, my friend, is a fair question, and I ask it of myself. Am I lifting up words and rhetoric to a God of love, and are my words dripping with love, or are they intellectual, eloquent thoughts? What does a God of love, who is love, do with eloquent thoughts, eloquent words? (laughs) Does that touch him? Because every time he was touched, he touched someone else. What touches him? You want to experience more of the Holy Spirit? Then you figure that one out before you even go a step further. What touches his heart? Sit in it. I know of just this past week, among us and those online, the hundreds online, teenager with depression, hospitalized, eating disorder, multiple sclerosis, blood disease, deep-seated depression, loss of the use of someone's legs, Infertility. My wife had kidney stones one time, years ago. Never had them before. The pain was so severe. She was in the office on about 4.30, 5 o'clock one night, and I happened to be there at the same time. And she was in such severe pain, it was obvious we had to go to the hospital. Had no idea what was wrong. Her face started to droop on one side. Her hands started to gnaw together. She couldn't walk right. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm driving to the hospital. She's having a stroke. Trying to think of that goofy word. (laughs) Forget that, man. You gotta write it down. Her speech was slurred. I thought, my gosh, she's having a stroke. Get over to the hospital and I carry her in. I'm like, I'm dragging her. I'm carrying her in there and we get in the emergency room and about 20 minutes later, and, and, and we realized she had a kidney stone. She was in such pain. She was hyperventilating. She lost oxygen, and every, all her extremities started to shut down. Oh, thank God it was a kidney stone. So, I don't know, this went on for a couple of weeks, and it kind of subsided, and she, she came to the altar here, right here, I think, uh, and she prayed for God to heal her. And a couple in the church came up and laid hands on her. This couple laid hands on her and prayed. She went home about 2 o'clock and passed the kidney stone and didn't realize it. Did not realize it. Did not feel anything. And I thought, well, did they have the gift of healing? No, I'll tell you these people. They wrote us cards. They had a card writing ministry, to me and my wife. They would give us gifts on holidays cards, scripture. They would pray for us daily. They gave us a cutting board. I still cut stuff on it. 
I don't know if they had the gift of healing. One of them has gone on to be with the Lord. I don't know if they had a gift of healing, but I'll tell you what they had. They loved us. <laughs> that was what it was. They loved us. And when my wife was hurting, they were hurting. And when they prayed by faith, God mixed up the faith and the love, and I don't know what he come up with, but she didn't know it even happened until it was over. You see what I'm saying? We, we make these things so spiritual. The gift of healing is probably the, the idea that someone has a deep burden for someone. That's why you'll, you'll hear me do this sometimes. I'll bring up a subject that needs prayer, and I'll say, there's someone here in the congregation who want to take that through the week with them. You already have a burden for that. That's who you want praying. I'd rather have one person with a burden than 300 people just throwing up some prayer out of duty. You see what I'm saying? If you want to pray for your spouse, you want to pray for your people in your life, you want to pray for healing, you want to be a church that continues to see healing, then feel it, sit in it, pick it out, get the burden. I, I, I went through this. I went to see that, that guy in the ICU with the COVID and the ventilator and the 41 days. They're telling me, write him off. Tell his mother that he's going to die. Let's get him off of this thing. Let's move on. They're telling me. I walked into that four-by-four four room with him, whatever it was, and I'm like, good Lord, this is, this is a whole new thing here. I just stood there. I go, all right, Lord. I ain't praying until I really... I'm on board with this. I want to get to where I can actually pray in earnest. I want to get to where I'm mad about this. He was oblivious. He's, he's knocked out. He doesn't know what's going on. He's not in pain. I needed some pain. I needed some frustration, right? I needed to care. I needed to touch God in a way that God was already touched on this kid's behalf. Before I offer up some prayer, it's not the prayer. There was someone else here today. I'm not going to call them out. We, we went to her, her living room and walked across the living room and felt a deep desire for her to be better. There it is. God touched her. Sit in it. Feel it. Hurt. The, the call to Christianity is a call to pain. I'm sorry to... Disappoint you. If we really, really got into what it means to be in the Bible and live in the first century, you'd come over here and you'd probably leave in a bad mood. Like, it's about pain sometimes. It's about death. Something has to die. My self-centeredness needs to die if I'm going to pray for somebody. My, my uh, passivity needs to die. My ambivalence needs to die. It needs to dry up. The old man needs to go away. The not caring Anything in me that says, this is my job, I'm going to do it, because that needs to go. A calling says, I'm going to feel it, I'm going to hurt, I'm going to press in, right? Totally different. That's different, different, different than what we've been told. Raise your faith. Well, raise your faith, but make sure it doesn't outrun your love. If you're listening today and you don't have any faith at all, fine. It's not ideal, but it's a starting place. So what do you need to hear? You need me to tell you to believe more? You, what do you know about it? You don't believe it at all. You have no point of reference. Talk to you, I'm blue in the face about belief. But I'll tell you what I need to tell you first. There is a God. He's real. And he loves you. <laughs> he is love. Before you were ever born, he knew your name. 
You were in your mother's womb. He knitted you together. That same God that's love, let me tell you something. He died on the cross for knowing your need of a Savior now. He preemptively canceled your sin that your willingness to accept that gift will release you from the condemnation that you're due. Uh, if you want to believe in this Christ of which we speak, then you first need to know that he loves you. And I know that you've heard that a million times. And I know you've told people that a million times and you didn't really love them and they didn't really love you because they ended up cheating on you and betraying you and running off. But this God I'm talking about, he really does love you. He really is love. He really does care. And he's shed as many tears as you have, if not more. And he collects them in a bottle. He'll make a fine wine out of them one day. No one should ask you to believe in a God that doesn't love. That's an idol. Oh, this God loves you. And he groans, mourns, even when he spared your life, even when you reject him, even when you use his name in vain. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. More than, more than all the people you wanted in your life to love you but never really could the way you needed, he loves you. And he invites you into believing that he loves you and believing that he is love. And this is what makes him so attractive because what you need more than anything is love. As soon as you get a hold of that, you need forgiveness. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I apologize if all you've ever heard from Christians that you need to believe and never brought up love. To believe in a God who isn't love is to believe in an idol who cannot love, who is an inanimate or not real. He loves you more than you, your spouse, more than you need your spouse to love you. He loves you. He loves you in ways you can't even think about. He's willing to overlook every rebellion and sin you've ever committed against him, others, or any sin of omission. He loves you so much he died on the cross and shed his blood that he might have, you might have access to the Father of love. And you can come boldly to the throne of grace. A way has already been made and you can't manufacture it or perform at a level to accept it or earn it. He's love. And if you're here today and you're dealing with some horrific disease or some malady or some Lord, give us a love for each other.